Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and welcome to Season 2 of the Logical Christian Podcast. I'm your Logical Christian, Dan Irwin. Welcome to those who are here for the first time, and a hearty welcome back to the LCP faithful. What we do here is look at what the mainstream media feels is important to tell us about current events, politics, science, religion, and just about anything else, but we're not interested in their spin. We want to look at these stories logically, and we especially want to look at these stories as Christians. Links can be found in the show notes if you'd like to follow along. So with that, let's go be logical Christians. I'll tell you what, you people make me sick. You think you know everything, but what do you actually know? Nothing. Not a thing. Do you even have expert after your name? When you sign your name, what letters signifying credentials of expertise do you honestly apply to that signature? Yeah, that's what I thought. Maybe you just need to shut the pie hole and do what you're told, when you're told, how you're told, where you're told, and don't you worry about why. And you just keep on doing or thinking or being that way until you're told that that's the wrong thing to do and always has been, you fool. Do it this way. On today's episode, first you'll find that the experts will bleed you dry, if you're the right fit, and then you'll marvel at the experts that are so good they can do it with both eyes closed. And after the bump of the goal update, I may need the uh, help of an expert myself. So, palm side up and make a fist, and grab a blindfold so you too can be just like the experts. Because as I've tabulated with my scientific computerized calculatrix device and plotted into Excel using a plethora of data points and error coefficients, I can now conclude with a 98% confidence interval, and four out of five dentists agree that the premise of which I surmise my conclusion is here we go. In 1987, Mystery Science Theater 3000 riffed the 1960 black-and-white movie entitled The Leech Woman. I mention this because if it wasn't for MST3K, I wouldn't even know this movie exists. If you don't know what MST3K is, well, one, I feel sorry for you, but it's where the man and the two robots sit in the theater seats. You just see their outline, and they make fun of the movie. I'd say most of you probably know what this is now, and if you don't, look it up. You... You won't regret it. Anyway, in this movie, the plot per Wikipedia and warning, spoiler alert, quote, A mysterious old woman named Mala, who claims to have been brought to America 140 years ago as a slave, approaches endocrinologist Dr. Paul Tabbitt and promises to reveal to him the secret of eternal youth if he will fund her final trip back to Africa so that she can be beautiful and young for one last night before she dies. Paul is unhappily married to the alcoholic June, who is ten years his elder. Paul prefers younger women. Old women, he says, give me the creeps. They follow Mala to Africa and witness a secret ceremony of the Nando tribe that utilizes orchid pollen and a sacrificial male's pineal gland secretions. The secretions, extracted from the back of the neck via a special ring and mixed with the pollen, temporarily transform Mala into a young, beautiful woman. After discovering that her conniving husband only brought her along as a guinea pig who could talk, June takes revenge, choosing him to be sacrificed so that she can use his pineal gland extract to become young again herself, though Mala warns her that the transformation will not last long. She steals the ring and pollen, kills her jungle guide, and returns to the United States. Masquerading as her own niece, Terry Hart, she keeps herself young by picking up men and killing them for their pineal extract. But each time the potion wears off, she is older than she was before. As Terry, June quickly becomes enamored of her lawyer, Neil Foster, a man half her actual age. She kills his jealous fiancée, Sally Howards, draining her pineal gland and eliminating Sally as competition. 
When the police come to investigate the murders that June has committed, she uses Sally's pineal gland extract, but finds that it does not work because it is from a woman. Before the police can arrest her, she throws herself out her bedroom window, crashes to the ground, and dies. When they see her body, it is much older and much more shriveled than ever. This kind of fountain or pineal, and I'm not sure that I'm saying that right, pineal gland extract of youth story has been told over and over in various ways over most of human existence. Our quest to stay young encompasses nutrition, exercise, stress management, perfection of sleep cycles, eliminating habits and addictions, the taking of supplements and drugs, injections of drugs or poisons, like Botox, makeup for both men and women these days, clothing that shapes, squeezes, conceals, and accentuates, hair dyes, beard dyes, wigs and toupees, plastic surgery, photo filters, and the list goes on. And although I'm not an advocate for just letting yourself fall into disrepair, I think that growing old gracefully rather than scratching and clawing for youth is the way to go. Now, as of late, some surveys suggest that women actually prefer the dad bod. In some surveys, by a rather large margin, as opposed to the chiseled, rock-hard, oiled chest and six-pack abs of the gym rat. And a large percentage of men prefer, without using the crude acronym, the moms or even the cougars in the world, rather than the young model types. But the fountain of youth, the magical elixirs, the soul or essence stealing from younger humans, has always been the thing of legends and myths, stories and old wives' tales, and of course the horror movies. That is until recently. Enter Brian Johnson, a middle-aged technology expert, mogul, multi-multi-millionaire. The article we're going to springboard from, carefully as my bones are old and my joints are shot, is found on notthebee.com. Headline, this tech mogul takes his son's blood in order to stay young and healthy. And then they put a little Dracula icon at the end of the headline. We're not really going to hang out on this article much, as it's mostly a YouTube video, but I wanted to be clear about where I started from. As always, I'll link my sources in the notes, but I'll be jumping through a few articles found on TheBlaze.com, one from the New York Post, or NYPost.com, one from the TheIrishExaminer.com, which I believe stole the article from Bloomberg, uh, something from Medium.com, ResurgenceWellness.com, and Brian's own webpage, Blueprint.BrianJohnson.co. So, Brian is a 45-year-old man who sold the online payment company Braintree to PayPal, or I think more accurately to eBay, for $800 million in 2013. That was in cash. He soon decided that the goal in life is to live as long and as healthy and as young as he could. He now spends about $2 million per year following a very strict regimen of diet exercise, supplements, and other wellness tasks on a daily basis while being monitored by more than 30 doctors and other health experts. His self-stated goal is to maintain his entire body at the age of 18. As he stated, he wants to have an 18-year-old brain, heart, lungs, liver, kidneys, tendons, teeth, skin, hair, bladder, penis, and my favorite, rectum. <laughs> rectum, dang near killed him. Sorry, I had to do that. His battle is against entropy, the process of order moving to disorder, or as we call it, aging. You know, due to organs and systems wearing out wear and tear on various joints and other systems, the effects of sun and other elements, etc., etc., etc. 
His regimen includes an intake of exactly 1,977 vegan calories per day. He wakes up at 5 a.m. every day, takes two dozen supplements and medicines. Then he does an hour of exercise every day, consisting of 25 specific exercises, three of those days being high intensity. And he drinks a green juice with creatine, cocoa flavanols, collagen peptides, and some other stuff that I'm sure makes it just delectable. After eating, and this is throughout the day, he brushes, water picks, and flosses, then rinses with tea tree oil and applies an antioxidant gel. He blasts his pelvic floor with electromagnetic pulses so as to exercise those muscles that apparently can't be worked out easily. Every day, he applies seven creams, as well as having a weekly acid peel and laser therapy in order to repair sun damage to his skin, and has recently decided that staying out of the sun is the right way to go. He has two hours of wearing glasses that block blue light at the same time every night, followed by the exact same bedtime every night. He measures his weight, BMI, and body fat every day, as well as his temperature upon waking every morning, and his blood glucose, heart rate, and oxygen levels while sleeping. He constantly monitors his vital signs. He has regular blood, stool, and urine tests, as well as scheduled monthly medical procedures, with some called, quote, extreme and painful, as well as MRIs, ultrasounds, and colonoscopies, with a current count north of 33,000 images taken of his bowels as of now. He even has a device that counts how many erections he has each night. And you'll be happy to know that Mr. Winky is acting like a teenager. He also does hearing therapy specifically for his left ear, which has some hearing loss due to hunting when he was a boy. And this is using an experimental process that claims to improve hearing by at least 10 decibels. He's also undergone facial fat injections, not to get rid of wrinkles, but as part of a therapy to build, quote, fat scaffolding in the face that is supposed to produce young person fat cells, giving him eventually, theoretically, the face or, or the fat face of an 18 year old. Now, he and his massive team say that he's being successful. He says that he's aging at a pace slower than a 10 year old whatever that means, body inflammation is way below that of a 10-year-old, lung capacity and function of the best 18-year-olds out there, his liver is perfect by the numbers, he has ideal body fat and muscle, perfect biomarkers, he can leg press and bench press with the top 10% or better of 18-year-olds, he says that he's reversed his age by 12 years, had an 80% reduction in gray hair at the tops for his sleep performance, Whatever that means, he's improved his brain, among many other things. He said that his philosophy matured after he read the book Zero, A Biography of a Dangerous Idea, at which point he started to pursue the, quote, zeroth principled thinking. Now, he tries to explain this search for zeros. He states it as trying to find the best moves to make in life that come from an alternative dimension, moves that always existed but we've never been able to see. <laughs> Ooh. He says this, quote, Zeros by definition cannot be defined and are hard to imagine. Mm. Some that come to mind, what if we weren't motivated by social status, others' approval or wealth accumulation? What if we felt no tribal proclivities? What if we primarily cared about harmonious play of a type we don't even have words or concepts for today with all things around us? What, enter your most 
unintuitive, counterintuitive, and unlikely assertions are you thinking of that I can't see? After all, our modern world would appear all those things and equally foreign to our ancestors. These ruminations, even a few decades ago, could have easily been dismissed as practically impossible or as a waste of time for anyone actually wanting to accomplish something. As we build our autonomous selves, our mental energies will be freed up to explore these frontiers. Hunting for zeros is relevant for everything currently top of mind, from how we address climate change, how we adapt to technological disruption, how we build AI, how we govern ourselves, and how we evolve and motivate our reasons to keep going, to keep existing. Whew. Now, in a previous age, we'd call this method of thought stupid or foolish because that's what it literally is. It's a new age spirit guide kind of thinking. It's supposed to sound profound and we're all supposed to ooh and awe ah about it sitting Indian style because I'm not sitting crisscross applesauce, I'd rather be labeled racist, staring in awe and wonder at this modern day enlightened guru. But for those of us that have, you know, logic and common sense, we say, uh, why not do something productive, you know, with your time? He goes on to quote Dirk Gently, the holistic detective that Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy author Douglas Adams created, stating, quote, I don't like to eliminate the impossible. This is zeroth principles thinking, apparently, seeing the blind spots. <laughs> so I guess part of this magical, mystical zero thought process is that he needs the blood of young boys. For some time, Brian has apparently used various quote, blood boys, who have been carefully screened to ensure, quote, the person had an ideal body mass index, lived a healthy lifestyle, and was free of disease. The process is basically this. An amount of blood is drained from the participant. It's filtered, separated into plasma, white cells, red cells, and platelets. Then the plasma is pumped into Brian. But as of April of this year, he decided to use his own 17-year-old son as his personal blood boy. Now, on this first occasion, his son donated about 33 ounces of blood, or about two pints or two units of blood. The plasma, like I said, is then injected into Brian. Of course, to make the room, Brian had to remove the same quantity of his blood. But don't you worry, that didn't go to waste. Oh, no, sir. His father, at 70 years old, was the recipient of Brian's plasma. So, you see, it's the circle of life. <clears throat> Now, this sort of thing has been going on for a while, working under the unproven theory that this kind of rejuvenation therapy could improve bone structure, cognitive function, and metabolism. However, the FDA said in 2019 that benefits can't be assumed, and in fact, the safety of this kind of process shouldn't be assumed either. The process generally runs about $5,500 per treatment, and you'd assume that these blood boys are paid fairly well. Otherwise, you know, why would you do this? But, uh, but no, apparently they generally get about 100 bucks in gift cards, which, hey, I mean, 100 bucks is 100 bucks, am I right? Now, as if this isn't gross enough, this concept got its start when scientists literally sewed old and young mice together, crossing their circulatory systems. The older mice showed the improved cognitive function, metabolism, and bone structure that is being assumed will be seen in humans. The New York Post gives a little insight into Brian that I think is relevant. Apparently, prior to starting this, let's call, uh, let's call it his obsessive procedures, he would binge snack in the evenings, which caused him to gain about 50 pounds. Prior to that, in his 30s, before selling Braintree, he was working long hours, had high stress, and was reportedly nearly suicidal. 
But of course, today, rather than see his current obsession as the exact same thing, you know, the same mental or psychological issue that caused him to binge eat or work long hours to the point of suicide, well-paid doctors and so-called professionals are all too happy to be paid to affirm his mental illness. In 2017, Allure.com published an article about people using plasma treatment, you know, using the blood of teens, to improve skin tone and texture, remove wrinkles, and promote hair growth. One company reported about 100 customers, aged 35 and older, paying approximately $8,000 per treatment. And this is with no real scientific data or conclusions and no control group to measure against. Seems like a good gig if you can get it. So what are we to make of this? Well, from my perspective, I see one of two, or maybe both, problems. We're either dealing with someone who has an issue of pride or vanity, or we're dealing with a fear of death. Now, there's a possibility that he's just really just mentally deranged, or that he really likes to be a human experiment. And although I'd have to say that there's a level of derangement, clearly, as this is quite obviously not normal, and he's... I think got some level of altruistic intentions trying to find, you know, the answer for humanity. It doesn't seem to me like either of those are the main driver or drivers to his, um, let's just say, unique worldview. If I were a betting man, and I'm not anymore, uh, never really was, I had more fun watching other people lose money. I'd say that he's got a combo platter of pride and fear, and what else would we expect from a godless worldview? And how do I know he's got a godless worldview? Well, from the actions he's taking and the New Age mystical spiritualistic language that he uses. Without a correct worldview, without a proper orientation of our place within this creation, viewing ourselves through the eyes of the world, religion of self, pride and vanity is our default orientation. In this month of June, currently known as Pride Month, it's worth keeping in mind that pride is arguably Satan's favorite sin. This is the sin that caused his downfall. Quote, your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you. Pride is also what Satan used to help nudge Adam and Eve into breaking the one rule God had given them. Why shouldn't they be like God? Why are they considered less? Look at them. Now, Brian, in a way, reminds me of Uncle Rico from the movie Napoleon Dynamite. You know, quote, how much you want to make a bet I can throw a football over them mountains? Yeah, coach would have put me in fourth quarter. We would have been state champions. No doubt. No doubt in my mind. Quote, back in 82, I used to be able to toss a pigskin a quarter of a mile. Quote, man, I wish I could go back in time. I'd take state. See, Brian, like Uncle Rico, wants the ability to go back to a time when he felt he was at his peak, or at least should have been, and given the chance, he can be now. Now, unlike Uncle Rico, Brian has the money to attempt to make that happen without buying a time machine off the internet. Now, don't get me wrong, I don't think that the Bible has anything negative to say about keeping yourself in shape, to stay fit, to stay strong. Remember, gluttony is in that list of the seven deadly sins as well. And yes, I know that those are not enumerated as such in the Bible. In fact, they were first listed by Pope Gregory I in the 6th century and later elaborated on by St. Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century. But regardless of how they were enumerated and regardless of the deadliness of the sins, you have to admit that the list is a solid list of sins that we should probably try to avoid. Anyway, not the point. For the first time in a while, I think I've clearly digressed. Although there's nothing wrong with taking care of the body, God has given you, and a lot right about taking care of it. As with everything, there's a point where it's gone from taking care of for the glory of God to worshiping and idolizing for the glory of self. Psalm 10.4 says, 
The wicked, through the pride of his countenance, will not seek after God. God is not in all his thoughts. Now, is Brian wicked? Well, as a human, probably not from a human standpoint, but from this definition, yeah. Proverbs 8.13 says, The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Pride and arrogancy and the evil way and the froward mouth do I hate. Proverbs 29.23 says, A man's pride shall bring him low, but honor shall uphold the humble in spirit. And our favorite, Proverbs 16.18 says, Pride goeth before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. Nearly 100 times in the KJV, we find something said about pride or being proud, and very few of those instances are used in a positive manner. Brian, trying to be 18 to the point that he siphons the blood of teens, the right teens, follows the regimen he does and now has decided that he needs to stay out of the sun, clearly is drinking deeply from the well of pride. He must be. Likewise, if you don't have assurance in what you believe, and this can apply to really kind of any general belief, uh, for everyone at some point the fear of death will manifest. Now, I'm not talking about the fear of dying, the process of life ending. I think that's a universal fear that nearly everyone has to some degree, but rather the fear of what happens next. Where do I go? Do I go anywhere? Just the other day on a site named interviewmagazine.com, I guess Danny DeVito interviewed his twins co-star Arnold Schwarzenegger with the question in question, being about life and death. Keep in mind that Arnie has stated as recently as 2021 that he had a Catholic upbringing. So although there are a number of major problems with that particular belief system, including assurance of salvation, the concept of a sort of salvation, a resurrection, a heaven, a hell, eternity, etc., are all covered in mostly a biblical way. And Catholics literally utilize the Bible, which Arnie could have read on his own if he so chose. Well, the 78-year-old Catholic Danny DeVito, who was married to a Jewish wife, asked the nearly 76-year-old Arnold Schwarzenegger, after watching each other drink some water, the following question, quote, The whole idea that we have to drink water out of bottles, I worry about what's going on in the world with water because we're running out of it. Look at Lake Mead and what's happening there. What's in the future for us? What do you think in terms of our species? Are we going to last? Tell me, O oh great leader. And then the following exchange takes place. Schwarzenegger laughs. It reminds me of Howard Stern's question to me. Tell me, Governor, what happens to us when we die? I said, nothing. You're six feet under. Anyone that tells you something else is a effing liar. DeVito, you don't know. Schwarzenegger, I said, we don't know what happens with the soul and all this spiritual stuff that I'm not an expert in, but I know that the body as we see each other now, we will never see each other again like that. DeVito, we deteriorate. Schwarzenegger, except in some fantasy, when people talk about, I will see them again in heaven. It sounds so good, but the reality is that we won't see each other again after we're gone. That's the sad part. I know people feel comfortable with death, but I don't. DeVito, no. Schwarzenegger, because I will effing miss the S out of everything. To sit with you here, that will one day be gone? DeVito, no. Schwarzenegger, and to have fun, and to go to the gym, and to pump up, and to ride my bike on the beach, to travel around to see interesting things all over the world, what the F? DeVito, life, it's the best. Schwarzenegger, exactly, what's that all about? DeVito, yeah. Schwarzenegger, I tell you, there's someone that mixed up this whole thing, think about it, who can we blame? DeVito, you mean that we don't live forever? Schwarzenegger, yeah, that we have to die. DeVito, that's tough, man. Schwarzenegger, I don't know what the deal is, but in any case, it's a reality, and it truly pisses me off. DeVito, you don't want to die. 
Schwarzenegger, no, what the F, what kind of deal is that? DeVito, well, we all know how many people we lose in life, our friends who go, relatives, people we love. Schwarzenegger, as you get older, more and more people around you wipe out. DeVito, they start disappearing. Schwarzenegger, exactly. DeVito, one by one, that's why you have to treasure every single moment. Schwarzenegger, just in bodybuilding alone, I've lost 15 friends in the last 20 or so years. I go to the Arnold Classic in Columbus, Ohio, a big sports and fitness festival, and the hall is packed, thousands of people. I look out to these people and I do my speech, and then all of a sudden, I see all of the people who died, sitting together in the front row. DeVito, they're gone. Schwarzenegger, but I see them sitting there. Joe Gold, Joe Wider, and Ben Wider, Dave Draper, all these guys just wiped out. DeVito, all the people who are dear to us, but you keep them in this spot in your head. To me, heaven is where I put a person who I love dearly, who is kind, who is generous, who made a difference in my life and other people's lives. I keep them in a spot in my head, like that front row that you have of all your friends, and you always have a good feeling when you think of them. Schwarzenegger, because all of them, by the way, had something to do with helping me. DeVito, exactly. Schwarzenegger, Joe Gold, who owned Gold's Gym, said to me, Arnold, you're the only guy who comes in the gym and doesn't have to pay, because you came over here from Europe with nothing. He made me feel like Gold's Gym was my home. DeVito, he cared about you. Schwarzenegger, I didn't know anybody, but all of a sudden he created this family around me. There's things like that which you can never pay back. DeVito, you pay it back with the reverence you have for him. Schwarzenegger, right. And then they changed the topic. Now, I don't know if you found that interesting. I found that to be an interesting conversation, but also very sad. Two men, no hope, a false view of the afterlife, no understanding that for those who are saved, there will be a bodily resurrection in these bodies, but glorified and perfected. For as much as Arnie thinks he had the perfect body, his glorified body would be infinitely better. And why do people die? Because sin entered the world. Who to blame? Well, Adam. But if it wasn't Adam, it would have been Cain or Abel or Seth or any of us. Adam wasn't uniquely weak regarding temptation. And I think the saddest part of this whole conversation is when DeVito responds, quote, life, it's the best. Is it? Because have you looked around? Life is a disaster, a painful, destructive, sin-cursed existence. That wolf, in biblical terms, Joel Osteen, who wants you to live your best life now, will only accomplish his goal if you and he are headed to hell when you die. If you're not saved, this is literally your heaven right here on earth. This is heaven, the best you'll ever have. If you're saved, this is literally your hell, the worst existence you'll ever experience. And how good or bad, how rich or poor, how powerful or powerless you are in this world doesn't matter. Either you're saved or you're not. Either this is your hell or this is your heaven. Now, regarding Brian, he appears to be working toward a goal of immortality, or at least a lifespan that greatly exceeds those of recent history. Is he afraid of dying? Well, I'd expect that he'd tell you no. I'd also expect that if he were honest, the answer would be yes. Regardless, either way, he's going to die. Eventually, he's going to die, and I feel confident saying that he might live a long life, but he'll live what we consider to be a lifespan within the typical range. He may be in excellent shape with smooth skin and a fat face and very little body fat and a rectum so perfect you'd hate to use it for what it's designed for, but his skin and face and body and poop shoot will all be the best looking dead parts the coroner has ever seen. And by the time he's beautifully buried in the ground or encased in glass for the world to slowly shuffle past and marvel at, he'll be well aware of the truth of what happens after death and the vanity, the futility of his pursuit. And I think the regret of knowing how frivolously he spent his blessings of wealth, intelligence, and time while on earth. Quote, 
And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. See, Brian will die at the precise millisecond that God predetermined for him since before creation. He will die in the exact location and in the exact way that was predetermined. And nothing he does will stop that. Whether that's old age, or a freak accident while working out, or a car accident, or a plane crash, as a combatant in war, a gas leak, a house fire, or like Robert Atkins, the very physically fit cardiologist and creator of the still popular Atkins diet who died 20 years ago at the age of 73 when he slipped on some ice, hit his head, had a blood clot in the brain, slipped into a coma during surgery to remove the clot, and never woke up. In 10 days, he went from perfectly fine and fit to eternity, wherever his destination was. Brian ultimately has no say over his lifespan or death date. Neither do we. Now, I feel like Paul here. So should we just eat, drink, and be merry since we cannot die until God ordains? God forbid, don't thou be stupideth. Take care of the vessel God hath granted thee for the glory of God. And that's what we should do, but not to the point of idolatry. Quote, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world, and the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. And what is the will of God? Well, put simply, to love God with all we are, to love our brothers and sisters in Christ, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. Loving God is to follow his commandments, and that starts with the command to repent and believe, to follow God's command to be saved. After this, we're commanded to work every day to be like Christ, to pray, to meditate on his word, to not forsake the gathering of ourselves, to always be prepared, and as we go, to tell others about the hope of salvation. Now, in the midst of that, we take care of our families, we raise our kids, we maintain ourselves, we work, we provide, and we do all of the other things that we hear about ad nauseum in sermons and conferences and read about in books, etc., etc., etc. Brian, although eccentric and unique, doesn't seem like a bad guy from a human standpoint, although, to be honest, I have no idea. He might be a monster. But his idolatrous focus on this life, the extension of this life, the perfection of this life— will still not only result in death, but will also lead to the second death and an eternity in hell. All that's done for self will pass away. Only what's done for Christ will last. How ironic is it that Brian is seeking perfection or immortality through the blood of his son? Brian doesn't need the blood of his son. He needs the blood of the son, the son of God, as do we. Not only will that regenerate him in this life, but it will lead to a perfection Brian could only dream of right now, and a heart that will give all glory to his Creator, Lord, and Savior, who is infinitely more worthy of the praise and worship that Brian is currently giving himself. We are living in an era where science rules. We know that science and religion are on the opposite ends of the spectrum. That's what we're told, at least. Science deals in facts, religion deals in myths, and try as science might, it simply cannot do what it needs to be done in order to advance and help society as long as religion is around, attempting to thwart its every move. 
In fact, Christianity is to blame for the Dark Ages, a period of economic, intellectual, and cultural decline. But is that true? Well, in a word, no. Science, by definition, is to know something. It's to gain knowledge about something. The scientific method, boiled down, is a process used to show how stupid we are. We develop a hypothesis, then test that hypothesis in every way possible, in order to prove that, we, uh, that, that what we guessed is wrong. And then we tweak the hypothesis and try again. In science, we never know anything for sure. The science is never settled, in other words. All we can say for sure is that the most mature hypotheses, like gravity or the speed of light or conservation of mass, for example, we have not found a way yet to disprove them, so they're assumed to be what they've been defined as. 32.2 feet per second squared on Earth, 186,000 miles per second, and matter cannot be created nor destroyed, respectively. Religion, by definition, is... Uh, there's a big sound in the sky, me scared, sky gods must be angry, dance for sky gods, make sky happy again, derp, 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 derp. Or at least that's how those working in the field of science would like to characterize those that believe in a religion, particularly the Christian religion. But the reality is that without Christianity, without religious philosophy, science would have been stuck, pretty much where it's <laughs> stuck today, to be honest. Back around the Dark Ages, the Greek pagan scientists were working based on the assumption that what they hypothesized must be right. Now let's just prove it. This is what we're doing today. We say the science says, or we declare that the science is settled, and then we tell you regarding what topic, and you just accept it without questioning it and do what you're told, which is usually complying with a mandate by some unelected government agency. The erroneous take on science was followed by the Muslims as well, and to some degree by Christians at the same time as the Greeks. But the difference is that the Christians, who had settled on God created everything, were out to prove not only that they were correct, but more importantly, how that happened. And by the approach they took, modern science was born. Christian philosophers were biased in their belief that God created what we see today, and from Augustine in the 4th century, we settled on the theological fact and scientific hypothesis that God created ex nihilo, out of nothing. This was surmised from the fact that on day 7, God rested from his creation, pronouncing everything good. If God had simply repurposed existing matter, it would have potentially been corrupted matter, thus not good. So in order for God to pronounce goodness, he would have had to create all matter, every molecule and atom, from his own will to ensure its goodness. So with Christians convinced that God created everything, centuries of philosophers struggled to understand not only how God created everything to work in such harmony, but also to understand the very laws that governed this creation. Simple experiments early in the Dark Ages to try to prove the pagan scientists didn't have everything figured out were conducted. Christian philosopher John Philoponus, Philoponus, not sure, in the 6th century wanted to test to see if the theory by Aristotle that heavy objects fall faster was right or wrong. And in all reality, he wanted to prove the pagan Aristotle and his followers wrong. So he dropped two balls, one heavy, one light, and measured their speed, finding that they fell at practically the same speed. This, although done with the intent to prove the pagans wrong, showed we needed more than hypotheses and speculation to draw conclusions. We needed empirical data. We needed to test these hypotheses and prove them right or wrong. 
Although not our article for this segment, I found a write-up entitled How Christianity Led to the Rise of Modern Science by James Hannum from March of this year, in fact, on equip.org, and it appears to have originated from Christian Research Institute. And I'm going to read a couple paragraphs from his conclusion. There may be a few things in here where your eyes kind of glaze over, but hang with me, it's worth it. Quote, In the 14th century, they began to consider many previously unthinkable ideas, such as whether the earth was rotating. The Parisian scholar John Buridan, 1295-1361, showed that the concept of relative motion means that we cannot tell if the earth is moving. His arguments were used by Nicholas Copernicus, 1473-1543, to support his theory that the earth is orbiting the sun. Buridan also built on concepts first suggested by John Philoponus in the 6th century to argue that the lack of friction in space means that the planets should continue to move forever after God has set them on their course. This anticipated the conservation of momentum. These theories formed the basis of Galileo's work and reached perfection with the mathematical principles of natural philosophy by Sir Isaac Newton, 1643-1727, in 1687. Newton himself was explicit about the religious roots of his work, as were Johannes Kepler, 1571-1630, Rene Descartes, 1596-1650, and Robert Boyle, 1627-1691, among many others. Over the following centuries, their new kind of science grew into modern physics, chemistry, and biology, something that could never have happened in the ancient Greek or Islamic worlds. Of course, we need to remember that medieval Christians were not deliberately trying to make progress towards science as we know it today. They were simply studying God's creation so that they could become better theologians and Christians. In that sense, their motives for doing science were no different from those of earlier eras. It was just that the metaphysical background to Christianity turned out to be uniquely conducive to successfully understanding the working of nature. In summary, atheist historians such as Richard Carrier are wrong to say Christians neglected science and that pagans were on the point of a scientific revolution. On the contrary, Christianity was a necessary, if not sufficient, cause of the flowering of modern science. So to sum that up, you see the daisy chain of Christian after Christian scientist building off of each other with the express purpose of learning how this creation works so they could glorify God more and better. And by doing so, Christians really are the reason that we have scientific areas of study today. In fact, many, many scientists that you've heard of or that you should have heard of were Christians, individuals such as Boyle, Euler, Faraday, Mendel, Newton, Gauss, Florence Nightingale, Volta, Pascal, Lord Kelvin, Morse, and so many others. I won't say that they are, were all working with the express purpose to be able to glorify God better, but they all worked with the understanding that God was the ultimate being, the creator, which gave them a unique perspective that other scientists denied in ignorance. Today, however, we live in an era where science is science, religion is religion, and never the twain shall meet. Science disregards anything religious because they've done exactly what the Greeks did 1,500 years ago, decided that they have the right hypotheses and ignored what they felt wouldn't support their hypotheses. This, as I've said before, is not science. In fact, removing God and Christianity from the equation creates very dangerous possibilities. To remove Christianity de facto removes morals and ethics from scientific inquiry. Now, I know 
There are ethical considerations that are to be followed in science, but the question is, whose ethics? They either have to borrow from Christianity, or they have to come up with their own ethics and morals based on their own relativism and postmodern belief structure, resulting in ethics that are built on shifting sands. Now that massive intro brings us to our article in question, found on SOT.net, headline, The Largest Scientific Experiment in History Was Peer Review Itself and It Failed. So peer review, as defined by Merriam-Webster's, is, quote, a process by which something proposed as for research or publication is evaluated by a group of experts in the appropriate field. Put simply, if a research paper is written before it can be published as a viable study, experts in that field are required to read, analyze, verify, check calculations, evaluate conclusions, and then either reject or sign off on the study. If it's accepted and signed off by one or more experts, depending on what the publication requires, the study can then be published and distributed. By using this process, it stops just anyone from making scientific claims and dramatically misleading other scientists and the population at large. For instance, the COVID vaccine study claims of efficacy and safety were all peer-reviewed and signed off, so as to allow the vaccines to move forward as emergency use for the public. And yeah, that should definitely tell you something. We'll come back to that. To start, the claims and scope spoken about in this article is astounding. It starts off with the header, quote, Peer review has been a 60-year experiment with no control group. Now, anyone who knows anything about scientific experimentation knows that you must have a control group, a group that gets the placebo, as it were, so as to understand the effect of whatever is being done as compared to no change whatsoever. In this case, the decision was made, apparently 60 years ago, that peer review was the way to go, so just do it. And admittedly, it sounds solid. This is why we have licensed professional engineers, for instance. They're tasked with verifying that the calculations and designs are correct and safe, and when they sign off, they're taking the liability on themselves. It's a reason I won't ever go get my PE license. I'm not willing to do that. The first paragraph of this article, under that header, states that peer review is, quote, touted as the gold standard of science, Yet the evidence shows peer review is an abject failure. There are 30,000 scientific journals that publish nearly 5 million articles a year, and the only thing we know for sure is that two-thirds of papers with major flaws will still get published, fraud is almost never discovered, and peer review has effectively crushed groundbreaking new discoveries. This, and maybe this is just me, doesn't sound, um, good. So how can they make this claim? Well, they cite studies that have been conducted, or maybe we call them gotcha studies, where errors were purposefully introduced into the studies to see if the peer reviewers would catch them and call them out. In fact, there have been entire papers written that are nothing but parodies of a study and then submitted for peer review to be published in whichever journal applies. So according to this article, the studies that have been conducted have shown that in one study only 30% of the errors were caught, in another study they caught 25%, in a third study they caught 29% of the errors. Now I don't know where you went to school, and maybe this is different in our current schooling, but from what I remember, 30% is a big F and probably a whooping or at least grounding by the parents. And these errors were stupid easy to spot. One that they cite is that the paper claims to be a randomized controlled trial, but it isn't. That wasn't caught. 
Or the authors draw a conclusion that is obviously wildly wrong according to the data, also not caught. Now, they make a good point in this article, quote, In fact, we've got knocked down real-world data that peer review doesn't work. Fraudulent papers get published all the time. If reviewers were doing their job, we'd hear lots of stories like, Professor Cornelius von Fraud was fired today after trying to submit a fake paper to a scientific journal. But we never hear stories like that. Instead, pretty much every story about fraud begins with the paper passing review and being published. Only later does some good Samaritan, often someone in the author's own lab, notice something weird and decide to investigate. Now, in one case, they show a bar graph in this article. On some graphs, and I'll be honest, I've never understood this, but there are little error bars, they call them, at the top or bottom or both of the bars on the graph. They look like capital T's or capital I's, and they're used to show variability in the data. I've never used them, and since I don't understand them, I probably never will. I've made it this long. Figure probably don't need them. But they show a graph that made it through peer review. The paper was published, and a Twitter user looked at it and found that the researcher literally just put capital T's on top of his bars to make it look like an error bar. And looking at it, he didn't even connect the T to the bar. And he used a font that made it obvious that it was a T, like a Times New Roman T. But this obvious issue just sailed through peer review. Now, back in 2018, and I remember when this happened, this was fantastic, a number of obviously fake papers were submitted for peer review and publication in various journals. Well, a pair of men, educated men, one a mathematician, one a university assistant professor of philosophy, wrote some hoax studies. Now, the year before this, they wrote a study about the, quote, conceptual penis, which had the premise that if we shift society's understanding of the penis, we could better combat climate change. Now, today we're arguing gender. We're even arguing that women can have penises, but we're not arguing that the penis is really only a concept, but that's what they were arguing. And if we could reframe the concept, boom, climate fixed, or at least on the way to it. So fast forward one year, the same pair wrote 20 papers over 10 months, sending them to what they felt were the, quote, best academic journals in the relevant fields. They focused on themes having to do with political ideologies, mostly on the woke side of politics. For instance, they wrote a, quote, dog park paper, which argued that men should be trained like dogs to prevent rape culture. Another paper was entitled, quote, Glaciers, Gender, and Science, colon, a feminist glaciology framework for global environmental change research, which argued if we studied glaciers in a more feminine way, we could maybe help the climate. Quote, merging feminist post-colonial science studies and feminist political ecology, the feminist glaciology framework generates robust analysis of gender, power, and epistemologies in dynamic social ecological systems, thereby leading to more just and equitable science and human-ice interactions. One that was finally retracted, since it was discovered that it was fake, was entitled, quote, In Ethnography of Restaurant Masculinity, Themes of Objectification, Sexual Conquest, Male Control, and Masculine Toughness in a Sexually Objectifying Restaurant. This was basically just a study of Hooters restaurants and something-something masculinity. 
Out of the 20 articles that had been submitted at the time of the writing of the article that I found, seven papers had been accepted, with four of them having been published online at that point. Seven papers were still going through the process, and six had been retracted or denied as being fatally flawed and beyond repair. One fake paper, the Dog Park paper, in fact, received recognition for excellence. And the duo got four invitations to join the peer review pool of experts for four journals that they submitted to based on their exemplary scholarship. It's a joke. That's what I'm saying. In fact, Vox.com had an article in 2015 entitled, Let's Stop Pretending Peer Review Works. This was, again, based on a test study where two different researchers submitted 12 papers that had been previously published two to three years prior in, quote, extremely selective American psychology journals. They changed the names, they changed the university names, and they resubmitted the papers to the same journals. Now, you may think that they were looking for plagiarism, but no, they wanted to ensure they'd be published again. But 90% of the peer reviewers now, only a couple years after they were originally published, recommended against publication because of, quote, serious methodological flaws. This study was done in the 1980s, nearly 40, 45 years ago. The peer review process was already seriously flawed. Vox made the point that nothing has actually changed. The same errors, the same carelessness, the same pointlessness is still plaguing peer review. Now, about a year later, in 2016, Vox published an article entitled, quote, This new study may explain why peer review in science often fails. They referenced some study that basically said the pool of peer reviewers was pitifully small, which means the reviewers were overwhelmed, so they need more people to do the work well. Okay, maybe, I don't know, but doubtful. But then Vox, in January of 2022, published an article entitled, quote, The Extraordinary Success of COVID-19 Vaccines in Two Charts. They cite a study by the Commonwealth Fund that claimed the VAX campaign through the end of November 2021 had prevented 1.1 million deaths and 10.3 million hospitalizations in the U.S. alone. They showed a couple graphs, then stated, quote, The Commonwealth study wasn't peer-reviewed, but it builds on a methodology that was. In a paper published this month in the journal JAMA Network Open, several of the same researchers estimated that COVID-19 vaccines averted more than 240,000 deaths between December 12, 2020 and June 30, 2021, before the worst of the Delta variant ignited in the U.S. In that same six-month window, vaccines were estimated to have prevented 1.1 million hospitalizations and halted 14 million infections, showing that more than 338 million doses had a powerful effect. It was larger than we would have expected, said co-author Megan Fitzpatrick, an infectious disease modeler at the University of Maryland. So now Vox is okay with data that's not peer-reviewed, but based on a study that was. I guess we're open to believing peer reviews based on the narrative that it's advocating, which is interesting. I should submit a study about this. Well, back to our article. Why in the world did we move to peer review in the first place? Well, the author of the article, citing the author of a study that she was basing her article on, said, quote, Mastroianni makes the case that the whole point of peer review was to deal with the explosion of new government-funded papers. Once the bureaucrats took command of science, the main aim was not brilliant discoveries, but just not to fail embarrassingly. 
Thus, peer review was merely a bureaucratic safety valve that cost no dollars, but gave a rubber stamp to government science. It became the committee cover that protected jobs, but in a sense, all of science became a bureaucratic protectorate. Mastroianni stated, quote, We treated science like it's a weak link problem where progress depends on the quality of our worst work. If you believe in weak link science, you think it's very important to stamp out untrue ideas, ideally prevent them from being published in the first place. You don't mind if you whack a few good ideas in the process because it's so important to bury the bad stuff. But science is a strong link problem. Progress depends on the quality of our best work. Better ideas don't always triumph immediately, but they do triumph eventually because they're more useful. You can't land on the moon using Aristotle's physics. You can't turn mud into frogs using spontaneous generation. And you can't build bombs out of phlogiston. Newton's laws of physics stuck around. His recipe for the philosopher's stone didn't. We didn't need a scientific establishment to smother the wrong ideas. We needed it to let new ideas challenge old ones, and time did the rest. Weak link thinking makes scientific censorship seem reasonable, but all censorship does is make old ideas harder to defeat. Now, he further argued that having a meaningless rubber stamp for some study is worse than no rubber stamp, using the example that if the FDA inspected meat by sniffing it only, then label it as inspected by the FDA, we'd put a lot of faith in that meat, when in fact we have no idea what we're getting, and neither does the FDA. At which point, I'd have to come back to the COVID vax, and now the new RSV vax, coming soon the flu, and then the combo vax. Peer-reviewed studies, FDA and other approvals, does any of this mean anything? And the answer to that question is, literally nobody knows. Science needs Christianity. Bottom line, any of the fathers of most scientific fields would absolutely agree with this. Without a proper positioning of mankind inside of this creation, without a proper understanding of who we are and what creation is, without the morals and ethics we are supposed to be bound to, as found in the Bible, Whatever science is being done is up for grabs as to if it's reliable, accurate, or even real. And then we need to root out fake Christians, I'd call them apostates, like former head of the NIH Francis Collins. This waste of space made the comment, quote, Give God the glory, but roll up your sleeve. He further stated that prayer and trust in God is not enough to protect them, especially if we, Christians, deny the protection that's been created for us to take. He thought that the young people were the most foolish, thinking they could escape horrible COVID death. Quote, many of them have heard that they're basically immune to any consequences of this virus. They should make a visit to the ICUs in Missouri, where the people in the ICU, many of them are under 40. This is not a disease that ignores anybody. You can still get extremely sick and die. We've lost more than 300 children who died and more adolescents. Have we? He's a wolf. Based on some of his views on abortion and creation and evolution, this man gives indications that he's not a saved individual. But these quotes are coming from the BaptistNews.com website because he claims to be a Christian. But see, in December 2020, the NIH website published a peer-reviewed study on the effectiveness of the Moderna vaccine. In April 2021, The Lancet published a study on the effectiveness of various vaccines and how many needed to be vaccinated in order to reduce the risk, etc., etc. But can, could, or should any of these studies be believed? Again, 
I have no idea. I know that I, for one, didn't believe them. They were suspect. They were narrative and agenda-driven. I didn't trust the science because the science is no longer science. It's whatever they want it to be. Devoid of Christianity, knowing the absolute fraud and lack of care found in science and the safety valve of peer review, how do we know what to trust? And I don't know. What I do know is that we Christians need to, first and foremost, rely on Christ and the ability to use logic and reason that God gave us. During the height of the pandemic, we saw a majority of professing Christians willingly ignore the oft-repeated command to fear not and opted to worship the idol of the almighty vaccine. Now, regardless of if it was the right or wrong choice to get the vaccine, the reality is that many Christians quickly transitioned faith in God to faith in government and just did what they were told, some even claiming that you were not a Christian unless you got the jab. How many used logic, reason, and prayer to make this decision? I know that some had to do it because of their job. Thankfully, I didn't have to make that choice, although I was close were it not for the courts telling Biden and his mandate to go pound sand. So I had to think about it, and I thought about it a lot. I looked at other places to get a job that didn't require a shot. I was scared, but I trusted God, albeit imperfectly, and I let things play out. By the time the mandate was handed down, I was fairly decided that I would have to leave my employment, that this vaccine was too dangerous for me to take. But at the same time, I know that God is sovereign, and that if I wasn't supposed to die or be seriously injured from the vax, I wouldn't be. What I didn't do was fall prostrate or prostate before Lord Fauci or any of the others. I knew that God gave us an immune system. I knew that what the scientists were trying to claim, that the immune system couldn't work against this virus, was wrong, even in a less than perfect state that it's in due to sin. I wonder what the COVID response would have been had science been real science, meaning that it had the knowledge and facts of Christianity at its base. So can we trust science and scientists? Well, maybe. It depends. A lot of science is just basic invention, basic improvements, etc. Verifying, using our logic and reason, and trusting that is fairly simple. The Bible is not, and keep this in mind, is not a science textbook. But where it speaks on matters of science, it's accurate and trustworthy. So when science delves into the realms of biblical knowledge, we must take that into account. Viruses, vaccines, RNA, and the immune system, this is the realm of God's creation. Should we inject untried, untested, unproven chemicals that will affect the building blocks of who we are into ourselves based on peer-reviewed studies? Well, that's a science and Bible question. And this should make us question all realms of science, psychology, biology, genetics, origins, earth sciences, including climate, and the list goes on. Are we being told the truth? Are studies being conducted accurately? Is global warming true? Is gender really a construct? Should children be mutilated? Is anyone checking their work or having their work checked before it's published as scientific fact? Have all sides of the issue been addressed, viewed, and reviewed? What does the Bible say about this? What does the Bible say about what our response should be to the latest discovery or recommendation or mandate? Science, even in its imperfect pagan form, is still generally worth considering, but the Christian should lead the way on discernment of what we're being sold. Christians should be leading every area of science, pushing against the only pagans allowed type of science. 
Christians should be out front correcting errors and filling in the rest of the story. And Christians should be displaying the hope and peace we have in Christ rather than begging our earthly king to save us. In an article entitled, Why Science Needs Philosophy, by a handful of authors found on PNAS.org, they state, quote, Philosophy and science share the tools of logic, conceptual analysis, and rigorous argumentation, yet philosophers can operate these tools with degrees of thoroughness, freedom, and theoretical abstraction that practicing researchers often cannot afford in their daily activities. Bottom line, the best scientists are Christians because we have and use a complete picture when analyzing and discerning data, findings, and results. So, whether you're a Christian in a scientific field or you're a Christian living in a world that's affected by science, that's all of us, by the way, we are called to use our God-given gifts and our discernment or get help from those that have the skills and or discernment in order to view the world, make decisions, and glorify God in all we do. We have a great gift, the Word of God, and even more importantly, the ability to understand the Word of God and apply it. We don't want to forget, ignore, or deny that in deference to the imperfect, compromised, and willfully ignorant systems the world is offering. Well, we've reached the end of another episode of the Logical Christian Podcast. Don't forget to like, subscribe, comment, review, share, and all that podcasty stuff. Contact information can be found in the show notes if you'd like to reach out to me. Lawrence J. Peter said, Against logic, there is no armor like ignorance. Jesus told us that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So stay in the word, stay logical, stay faithful, and until next time, God bless. Well, we meet again for the last time, for the first time, for the last time. Well, maybe for the first time. Hopefully not the last time, though. Anyway, we've made it to goal update 24, according to my spreadsheet. And just keep in mind that C's get degrees, okay? C's get degrees. So no need to drag this out, as I've got one day to go before heading out on vacation. Although when this drops, I'll be slap in the middle of oppressive Oklahoma summer heat, and my sister and likely youngest niece, as they're the most sadistic of the bunch, will be forcing me to do things like play volleyball or go outside or... Get off the couch. I mean, their brutality knows no bounds. That said, they've both been on their own weight loss journeys, very likely because they've been so inspired by mine, and good for them. They're working hard, making good progress. Now, uh, both of you should just turn this down for the next few minutes or skip a few minutes ahead and just keep being overwhelmingly inspired by what you think of me in your head. Okay, for the rest of us. Oh, oh, all right. I said I was going to try to maintain, you know, just hang on while... I was close. I gained over the last week, but it was only 0.6 pounds. I'll tell you, the battered wagon that I had climbed back on, oh man, she's in need of some major repairs. So I'm 184.6 pounds. That's 29.8 pounds down from when I started. So I'm still good there. But with this week plus of vacation, likely bad choices have already been and will continue to be made. Then I have about a month before heading out for another week. But the plan is to hit it between vacations, undo what I'm doing right now as you listen to this, and make some positive progress. As of now, I'm 6.2 pounds behind my goal, but uh, look, you know, a lot of red over the last number of updates, and I guess at least a couple more before we turn this chunky ship back around. We'll get there, though. So although knowing what I did over the last week and what I didn't do, I'm fairly happy with basically maintaining, 
and I think I see a light at the end of the dark, chubby tunnel. And from there, let's work backwards this time. So, devotions. I actually missed a day. I got up, got moving right away, and just flat out forgot to do my devotions one morning. You know, like a pagan. Still green, though, because, I mean, come on. As for Bible reading, oh, I'm finally done with that thing. Now, I'm not going to tell you the ending, but let me just say this. I think you'll be pleasantly surprised. You know, I think this is only the second time I've actually read the Bible all the way through. I mean, sad to say that I'm this old, and that's it. And what's worse, I don't remember, well, I mean, truth be told, probably most of what I read. But that's why we keep on reading, right? So I finished up the Daily Bible, ending at 153% of my goal pace, and now I need to move into phase two of my Bible reading goal, which is... And see, this is where I'm torn. I want to do the chronological reading plan, but not like in a year. I want to slow down, use at least one of my study Bibles to chase down parallel passages, definitions, look into the Greek and Hebrew lexicons in some cases, understand the history and the context. And like I've said, I've got a couple fantastic study Bibles. I've got some other really good resources to, to help do this. At the same time, I want to use some of the other books and resources I've got as guides to do some topical deep dives. So I guess I'll just eat until I figure out what I'm going to do with this. More to come on this, just not sure when. Let's say soon. But uh, as for now, this goal is a nice solid green. Finally, pages. Okay, so a better week than last week, but more through force of will. I wanted to get that third J.B. Collins series book read and get that done, and so I did. This one is entitled Without Warning. I hate to say it, but I kind of grew... You know, I'm not sure if it was more bored or frustrated as, as these books went on. Whatever it was, I have to believe it was probably more my fault, not really the book, as the books are, at least on the surface, really good. So first, the specifics of the goal update, then the brief review. So I finished that book and started another, a biography this time, but I didn't make any progress in my deep thinking book as I pushed to finish the other one. All total, I read 164 pages last week, putting me at 4,574 pages total and 19 books finished so far. Getting closer to that 5,380 page, 25 book mark, not bookmark, book mark, that I set back in 2019. Okay. As for without warning, it was another action-packed political thriller. Okay, There's a number of twists and turns, an ending you didn't see coming. That said, two things stuck out like that 800-pound pink elephant's gorilla-like sore thumb in the corner. I just had a hard time dealing with these couple things. As I don't want to ruin anything for anyone, because you may want to read these, and I wouldn't dissuade you from doing so. They are good. I'm going to try not to reveal anything specific, just a few generalities. My first issue... The author has the main character, J.B. Collins, feel extreme anger just over and over. And it's at like the weirdest times, and it doesn't really add anything to the story. He could have done the same by saying he was frustrated or annoyed or fed up or whatever, but he constantly had him on the point of just rageful anger and at points that it just didn't seem to fit in. So I found myself talking back to the book. I'd read something about how he was so angry he couldn't think or, you know, something like that. And I'd say something like, uh, of course you were. The second thing that got me was that uh, J.B. Collins, a reporter, a tenured war battlefield correspondent, but that's all. No background in the military, no background in special ops or law enforcement. But for some reason, he always, just being a reporter managed to outsmart terrorists, fight through battle zones, and outthink the special ops guys, I mean, just nearly all the time. 
The top military and CIA minds, for instance, would be mulling over the issue at hand, trying to come up with any sort of solution, just hitting roadblock and brick wall after brick wall, and Collins would just kind of walk up and give them the perfect solution. And it wasn't like he was just kind of a bumbling idiot and fell into it. Like, he put some thought into this and gave them what he believed should be the solution, and of course it was. It just... It just felt too convenient, and I mean, I, I know that this is a fiction book, but it really felt unrealistic. I talked to my book some more. So the first book in the three-book series was really good. The second was pretty good. The third was fine. I'm glad I read them, but I'm also glad there were only three of them. And although I think Joel C. Rosenberg is a very gifted author, I think I'll hold off before purchasing the first book in the next series. <laughs> just saying. Okay, well, that should do it for this week. There likely won't be a podcast episode next week. You'll just have to listen to one of the best of compilations. And since I haven't made a best of compilation, you'll have to listen to all of the podcast episodes first, then make your own best of compilation episode, and then listen to what you have brought upon yourself. So with that, I wish you all a safe and happy 4th of July. For all you Americans out there, remember what our founders put their life, their honor, and their treasure on the line for. It would be a tragedy if we let whatever remnant we still have slip away into tyranny as bad as, uh, if not worse, than we escaped from. Okay, bye! <laughs>